Jesus in this day has such wonderful portent for us. A couple of announcements. Feast of Tabernacles begins uh, Tuesday. That's this next Tuesday. That's right. It's here. 27th Tuesday. We'll have services at 11 and at 2. Uh, I'll pass out a schedule of services uh, probably this coming Sabbath. So you have all the times for everything. Also, since this is the Day of Atonement, you might remember several years ago we went through uh, to try to prove when the Jubilee will occur next. And the best date we came up with was 2027. Uh, That hasn't changed, and I'll go through some more information today to help establish that. Uh, But this atonement begins the third tithe year for us. Uh, It's the third year of a seven-year cycle, if we're correct about when the Jubilee is actually to arrive. So, third year of the seven uh, equals third tithe this coming year, beginning with atonement. Now let's begin today in Leviticus 23. I don't want to spend a great deal of time here, but to note that we are to keep this day, chapter or verse 27, on the tenth day of this seventh month there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be an holy convocation, a commanded assembly, to you, and you shall afflict your souls, that is with fasting, as shown in other places of the Bible, food and water, and offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. No work. It is a day for God to make an atonement, or us to make an atonement. Let me read it. And you shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement to make an atonement for you before the eternal, your God. And if we don't afflict our souls on this day, we're cut off from God's people. It is a day that has so much meaning that it cannot be skipped. In other words, this has so much to do with the kingdom of God in the future that without it, you're missing a major part of the plan of purpose of God. Actually, you're missing the marriage of Christ to His bride. And if you miss the marriage, uh, that's not so good, (laughs) you know. There's been a lot said about the marriage of the Lamb uh, in the Bible and what God has in store for His people. So, it's a very, very important day. And if you don't make it to the wedding supper, uh, at least in the first resurrection, you won't be in the kingdom of God. If you're in the second resurrection or live through into the millennium, your chance might be then. But for those who understand, it's now. And we look to that wedding supper. Now, there is a story that I'm not going to go through back in Leviticus 16 in detail this year. I've done it in past years. But on the Day of Atonement, they were to take two goats of the flock, and they were to be brought before the high priest, and a decision was made over them. One would be for an Azazel, and one would be sacrificed, would lose its life. 
I think Herbert Armstrong had this right. There are some people who have disagreed with him over the years, but in everything I've studied and researched, uh, both goats do not represent Christ. One represents Satan. Uh, of course, Christ defeated Satan uh, when Satan tried him after his 40-day fast. And it has been pronounced upon Satan that he is going to be banished from society, from the entire society of the universe. And he carries not our sin, but the guilt for our sin on his head. So he is going to be sent out into the wilderness, away from everyone, by someone fit to do it. And Christ became that fit man when he defeated him uh, after his 40 days fast. How could that represent Christ? There is no place in the Bible where Christ is consigned to a wilderness by himself. No way. He will be living with us, among us, ruling over us forever. And he is not in a wilderness now. He's at his Father's throne until he comes here. So never in the Scripture anywhere is Christ indicated as being alone, except when he was on the stake. And his father had forsaken him because of our sins. So he paid the penalty of our sins by dying, and he is represented by the goat in Leviticus 16 as the one who died. And our sin was pronounced upon him, that is, the penalty of it. What was pronounced upon the head of the Azazel, or scapegoat in the uh, King James was the guilt for our sins. Where did we begin to sin? Garden of Eden. Who was there who was guilty of leading mankind into sin? And who has been guilty of leading us into sin ever since? So it is not the penalty for sin that is pronounced upon him. He stays alive, and the indication from Scripture is that Satan will not be killed, but he will be put into solitary confinement forever and ever. So, uh, I think it should be very clear, putting other scriptures and the principles of the Bible together, that Christ is the one who died for our sins, and that is the one who was sacrificed on the Day of Atonement. Now, we cannot truly be at one with Christ as long as Satan is around, right? He has to be sent away. We struggle, we fight. We fight against principalities and powers. We have to have the whole armor of God on in order to thwart Satan, to turn him away. But he is always there to divide us from Christ, always there to cause us to sin in any way he can and keep us from becoming at one. And if you will, he, is, he has his hat in the ring to marry us. To make us his, if you will. He wants us. He's jealous of Christ who will have a bride and he knows he is going to be alone forever. So he's trying to steal Christ's bride away is what he's up to. And Christ has to come and put him away in order to keep him from stealing us. 
And in the meantime, he has to protect us and be with us and guide us and lead us and forgive us of the sins we do commit every day so that we can be a part of the bride of Christ. He's going to win. This other goat is going to be sent into solitary confinement and he will no longer bother Christ and his bride who can become then one together, a bride and a groom. And that is very much the meaning of the Day of Atonement. Trumpets, we are changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, a new body, we become spirit, and kind begets kind, and marries kind. So until that change at trumpets, we are ineligible to actually marry Christ. But with that change, then we become eligible. All sin is gone, all mortality is gone. And then we can proceed to the Day of Atonement, which is the day we become at one with Christ, having been transported to the throne of God and the sea of glass, married before the Father to Emmanuel, the Christ, God with us, who will be with us forevermore. So those are the huge spiritual overtones and meanings of this day. I'm not going to go into it in detail as we have in the past and probably will again in the future, but there's always an anticipation that comes with marriage. Now, if you were bride or groom, you were very, very aware of the date, are you not? You know what's on the invitations. You're probably counting the days down one by one, anticipating that marriage. Now, people you send invitations to may not anticipate it quite the way you do. They may have to pick the thing up and look, oh, when was that? Because it's not etched into their emotions and mind. But with you it is. So... A big question always comes up as to when. Counting the days, in this case, maybe counting the years. We don't know the day or the hour that Christ is coming, so don't throw that at me. Uh, there are some variables. However, I think we can know pretty close. You know when you see leaves beginning to come on the trees that summer is near. As Christ said, you know when the trees start turning brown, as they're just beginning to do here, uh, right now, then you know that winter is not far off. So as the seasonal change comes, Christ said, so will his return be. You're going to know pretty close to when that is. But let's uh, examine this Jubilee cycle again. I mentioned having received a paper from Zeke Ward uh, about not only the errors of the churches, but this. Uh, I find, after going through his paper and then checking back in my notes, he really didn't add to what we have, but he did come up with the same thing. So I think that is certainly good. Uh, there was one part in there I did not know that I had covered, but as I looked at my notes, I realized I had. So, uh, I'll give him credit for 
coming up with the same things we did, and I hope that we're both right. But let's review a little bit. Starting in Ezekiel 1, 1 through 2, there are people who have tried to establish the Jubilee cycle because we know it is important to keep the land Sabbaths. Uh, they are instituted and were to be kept. This nation has not kept them because we've not been following God's ways. But they are very important because every 50 years there is a jubilee, a time of liberty, of release, of land going back to the families that it originally was in, if it's been sold or leased out in the meantime. It also pictures some very, very great events in the future, uh, including the Day of Atonement. Because those tithe years, those sabbatical years, and the Jubilee were to be announced on atonement. So it is a good thing to look at today to see if we do have it right. Now here, in, uh, well, I'm in Leviticus still. I'll go to Ezekiel chapter 1. There is uh, a date here that seems to indicate that it could be speaking of the Jubilee year. It came to pass in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, by the fifth, uh, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river of Kibar, that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. So it was a time that God gave him visions of things to be, which can become important. Now it says the thirtieth year. Well, what does the 30th year mean? Uh, there are different commentaries that have assigned that 30 years to at least seven different possibilities. Uh, 30th year of Jehoiakim's age, the 30th year after Josiah's reform, 30th year of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, uh, the 30th year of Manasseh, the 30th year of Artaxerxes, the 30th year of Ezekiel's age, and also then, number seven, the 30th year of a Jubilee cycle. So it isn't really clear from the context here what 30th year this is talking about. And people have hazard, hazarded various guesses as to what that means. Now there is another scripture that we can put with this that seems to come together and indicate that it may be the 30th year of a jubilee cycle, as some have said. Let's go to chapter 40 of Ezekiel. I'm going to go over this fairly rapidly. We've been here before. I think there's an even greater corroborative scripture that we will use next. But chapter 40 of Ezekiel says, In the 25th year of our captivity... In the beginning of the year, in the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth year after the city was smitten, in the selfsame day the hand of the Eternal was upon me and brought me here, in the visions of God brought me to the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain, by which was the frame of a city on the south. Now, we had the 30th year mentioned back then in Ezekiel 1, and it was mentioned as the fifth year of the captivity. Here he mentions the 25th year of the captivity. So if year 30 was the fifth year, 
and you go to the 25th year, you have 20 years in there, right? You're already in the 5th year of the captivity when the 30th year is. So if he says he's in the 25th year, he's actually 20 years past that 30th, which makes a total of 50. Hope you're following what I'm saying. Uh, hard to, a little hard to grasp. But this was 20, 20 years later is what it's saying. So that makes a total of 50. Well, what transpired here? It shows the temple of Ezekiel and describes it in detail as to the size and the parameters and all the architectural ins and outs, which are actually very hard to understand exactly what's being said. But the thought here is this projects to the beginning of the millennium, the 50th year in which this temple would be there. Uh, and it is a vision of God. Uh, I think Ezekiel 48 in the last verse corroborates that to some degree. It says, The city from that time would be called, The Lord is there. So if Christ is there, and from there on, then that must be the beginning of the millennium, because that's the time when he will be here and there from that time forward. So the context might seem to indicate that this is a 50th year of the Jubilee cycle. Now, my question, as I thought about that this morning, is if we are to build this temple, which is a very strong possibility, I think, here at the end, uh, why would it be built before the Jubilee year? Why would it already be in existence? Well, Ezekiel 40 is projected to the 50th year and the beginning of the millennium, if that is the Jubilee year that is being talked about here. But you will notice that this temple is described as having already been built. He shows the dimensions of it. He talks about the walls and the various things that are already there. So if this building is to be ready by the 50th year, it has to have been built ahead of time. So that fits in, I think, quite nicely with the thought that we probably do have to build not only a spiritual but a physical temple here at the end time. And let's go on then and examine this 50th year some more because I think we have an even more obvious example. Now, if you follow that year, uh, let's see, I wrote it down here. Uh, the fifth year of the captivity, according to historians, was 594 B.C., so you add 20 years to that, and you come up with 594 B.C. as the 50th, or the Jubilee year, 594 B.C. Now, if you keep adding, there's a chart here on a paper I have, if you keep adding 50 years, 50 years, 50 years, in sequence, you have a 50th year that occurs in 27 A.D., 
plus or minus a year for a, a, B.C. to A.D. I never can remember which, which direction you add. It doesn't matter. They did it here. And they came up with 27 A.D. as a Jubilee year. So that would seem to indicate with where we're going now that the analysis of Ezekiel 1 and 40 uh, is indeed correct. Let's examine this now. Uh, first of all, go to Luke 1, excuse me, Luke 4. Luke 4. And Emmanuel, being full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, tempted forty days of nights. So, uh, he had grown up. Here was his temptation, the time that he defeated Satan, as is uh, commemorated on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. And he defeated him here. So this was the time that he was going to begin his ministry, 27 A.D. Verse 16, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, it was his custom to go on the Sabbath day. And it says, then he stood up for to read. Now, it doesn't say that it had been his custom to read on the Sabbath day. It was his custom to go there. Now, maybe they had allowed him to read there. I do not know. Remember, he was conferring with the rabbis when he was age 12. So he was already very, very much up on God's Word and history and everything else. It matters not. Uh, let's move on. And there was delivered to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Eternal is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. So Christ had been anointed. He had been baptized by John the Baptist. And I don't know exactly what had occurred there, but given a commission by the Father, and John the Baptist may have even anointed him with oil uh, to preach the gospel. That is the New Testament uh, way of doing it was by anointing and laying on of hands. And it was the same way in the Old Testament where uh, Aaron was anointed as well. So he was to preach the gospel. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty them that are bruised. So what he had been anointed to do, and he was announcing on that Sabbath day, and I think that probably was the Day of Atonement, because that is the day of the Jubilee and the day that you announce liberty. We may have assumed that that was a weekly Sabbath over the years, but I think the context and what we're about to see would indicate that the Sabbath spoken of here was the Day of Atonement. So it was a time to set at liberty and to preach the acceptable year of the eternal. 
So the acceptable year has to be a specific year. Now, after all is said and done, and the 6,000 years of man's and Satan's rule on this earth is finished, those years are not acceptable to God, are they? Was 1933 an acceptable year to God? Was 1807? Was 37 B.C.? What's acceptable about a year in which mankind is sinning continually against God and Satan is causing them to sin? I don't think any of the first 6,000 years of man's experience are acceptable to God. Okay? When is the first acceptable year? The year that Satan has been taken and bound and Christ begins his rule on the earth. That is acceptable to the Father. No year prior to that is acceptable. Now, there have been other jubilees. There have been jubilees since the beginning, all the way back into the Old Testament and maybe from creation itself. But even then, the world was full of sin and strife and war and anger and breaking of God's laws. So even though they were somewhat acceptable to Israel and to God as a year of physical release of debts and so on, the release from sin and death had not been applied. So what is true liberty? We do not have true liberty until our sins are forgiven, until the past is washed away and we have a new life to live. And that doesn't really fully come in fullness until the resurrection and the marriage of the Lamb. That becomes an acceptable year. But if he gave this on Jubilee of 27 A.D., then he was commemorating or using that 50th year as a type for the future, as it always has been. So he says he's to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, and he closed the book. He stopped right there with that statement, that final statement. It wasn't the end of what Isaiah said, but that is as far as he was going to go that day, that atonement, if you will. That's all he's going to say. He closed the book, gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say to them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So his commission, his anointing, started that day. And he would preach liberty, and he would do the things that were mentioned here. Healing blind, deaf, and so on. And to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now let's go back to Isaiah 61 and see the rest of the story, or at least a, an insight into the rest of the story. Here's where he quoted from in Isaiah 61. 
It's a prophecy, of course, of Christ. And when the time came for that to be fulfilled was when he read it. So here is the prophecy. What we just read was the fulfillment of this prophecy, at least a partial fulfillment, up to a point. The Spirit of the Eternal God is upon me, (coughs) because the Eternal has anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, It's filled out a little more in a few different words used than in the New Testament. That's probably Hebrew to Greek, plus he adds a little bit here that Christ did not uh, completely say. Proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the eternal. That's where he stopped the first time. Now, are we not captive of our human nature? Are we not captive as uh, of Satan to some degree or another here on this earth right now? We're still in that. Then he says, And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. He did not read that part. To proclaim the acceptable year and the day of vengeance of our God. We have come to see that Christ would come probably in 2027. We'll get into that a little more later, unless he cuts it short. But probably the Jubilee... 2027 28 would be the Jubilee year that matches up with what we've already been studying so far and will continue in in a moment. But I think I have shown you that when he returns, the trumpet is sounded and we rise to meet him. We then do not come to the earth immediately, but go to the Father's throne where the marriage takes place on the Day of Atonement. And during, and then we have the year of the honeymoon. That would be the Jubilee year. Okay? Jubilee, we've been released from all sin and death, from all tears, from all sorrow, from all suffering, given eternal life, married the Lamb, and then we have a year's honeymoon at liberty from work. Deuteronomy, I think it's 24, says that when a man takes a wife, he's not to work for a year, but to cheer up his wife. So Christ would follow that, that's his way of thinking, by having a honeymoon of a year with his wife. But at the same time, the tribulation, which just precedes the trumpet sounding for three and a half years, has been a time of Satan's wrath on man and a time of the Gentiles ruling the earth. Forty-two months. But God's wrath is bound up in the seven last plagues which come immediately after the Great Tribulation. Now Christ was not proclaiming in 27 A.D., the vengeance of the Lord 
he was only going so far as a certain amount of liberty, a certain amount of healing, and all of the things he would do during his next three and a half years of ministry. But it was not time for God's vengeance to be opened up and put upon the earth. That doesn't come until 2,000 years later. So the reason he left that off is that he was only going to partially fulfill it at that time. And 2,000 years later, after his return, those seven last plagues, the vengeance of the Lord, would then occur, finishing the prophecy. Finishing the prophecy. So there was a very, very valid reason he stopped reading there. It was only a partial fulfillment. Now, when the final comes, God's wrath will be poured out on the earth. Most of mankind that is left will die. And his bride will have received full liberty, full healing. Not just physical lameness or blindness, but spiritual, emotional, every kind of healing will have been accomplished. No more old wounds, no more worry about the past, the past will be forgotten, no more tears, no more sorrow. That's complete liberty. That's complete deliverance. So, let's look at this then from the standpoint of Christ himself. This appears to be 27 A.D. It fits in with Ezekiel 1 and 40 uh, in that sequence. And certainly was a time when Christ began to preach, probably on atonement that year, of the liberty the Jubilee offers and the liberty that would come in the future. The scholars have reckoned that 27 A.D. from history and so on uh, was the beginning of Christ's ministry. He was about 30, Scripture says, at the time that his ministry began. And he then taught his disciples for three and one-half years, trained them three and a half years. And then he died at Passover three and a half years later. That in itself dates it this account in Luke 4, to the fall. Three and a half years later, he died. So that would fit in with the idea of the Jubilee from Scripture itself that it was in the fall. So if he began speaking in the fall of 27, his ministry after his temptation, he died in 31 A.D., and the disciples went out to preach. Now, if you go to Herbert Armstrong's autobiography, I'm going to read a few. I'm not going to read some quotes to you. I'm going to uh, state some things that he said. Because you'll recall, and, and this is about a history of the true church of God leading up to the end times and the end time work of God. And it's important we make the connection from Christ's ministry to what has happened here in the end times. And there's a couple of startling things that we've not ever noticed before, I think, that we'll see here. 
So, Herbert Armstrong mentions that he began studying after being challenged by his wife on the Sabbath in the fall of 26, 1926. Uh, he had six months of, that's on page 264 of the autobiography, he studied very hard for six months, page 274, and he began to fellowship somewhat with the Church of God Seventh Day during this period of time, and apparently in 27, that's on page 314. And then late in 1927 and 28, he began to write some articles for their magazine, page 318. He gave his first actual sermon in the summer of 28, page 320. He then states that he was, and he says that, now wait a minute, I'll get ahead of myself. He said he was ordained in June of 1931 at age B, same time Christ was ordained. Now I think Herbert Armstrong was a minor informing the latter or the former temple in the end time. And the age was right, and he said that it happened right around Pentecost. It may have been even on the date of Pentecost, but it was a little hazy in his mind, but in June of 1931. So he had been trained at that point for three and a half years, is what he states. Then he was ordained and began to be a part of the ministry, just as the disciples had been called. The Oregon Conference, not the Stanbury Conference, as I mentioned when we were talking about Sardis. So the parallels are quite interesting. He also brings up this thought of 27 A.D. to 1927 A.D., as he thought remarkable, uh, he didn't tie the Jubilee to it, but he did mention Christ beginning his ministry in 27 and him beginning to start doing things of the ministry in 27, 28, which he said was 119-year cycles. You've heard that over and over. And he used the number 19 a great deal in relationship to the Radio Worldwide Church of God. Uh, 1934, the broadcast, I think, began in January, and it began in January of 53 in Europe and England, uh, 19 years later. So all those 19s that we've talked about, and we even talked about 19-year time cycles quite a bit, and I think that even fit into the 72-75 theory of Christ's return uh, back then. So the 19s were pretty important to him. And, indeed, the story fits very much with what Christ's ministry itself did. And if he was a more minor type of Christ, there is a more major one coming, uh, then that fits as well. But these are little things where God is precise and helps us recognize that there could be something to this, you see. So you take 27, add 1900... And if it was in an atonement, then that began the Jubilee year, which would have been the year of the fall of 27 through the fall of 28. Okay? That's 38 cycles of 50, 1900 years. Then if you add 
Two more cycles to that, another hundred years to 1927, you come up with 2027. Now that becomes even more important because that's 40 cycles of 50. 40 times 50 jubilees is 2,000 years, exactly. Or, if a day represents 1,000 years, that's two days in a 7,000-year or seven-day plan of God. And Paul does equate the weekly cycle to the cycle of God's plan for mankind on earth. The seventh day being the Sabbath, seventh day being the millennium. So Paul makes that very clear. So 2027 is in line with Ezekiel's uh, numeration of the 50 years. It's in, it's in line with Christ's uh, quote of that scripture, probably on atonement. I think undoubtedly on atonement. And it would finish the two days. Now, there has been a great deal of argument about when creation was. Bishop Usher, I think, said it was 4004 B.C. or 4006, one or the other. And others have said it was 4025 B.C. Uh, the Jews came up with 3761 B.C. as the year of creation. So they're all using different methods of counting back through genealogies and various ways to try to come up with the answer. Now you may know in the uh, compendium that, Her that Herman Hay wrote, he tried to go back through all the Egyptian dynasties and try to, to place everything right, but there were lots of different dynasties ruling at the same time, overlapping each other. And he wrote that whole book and spent years, I guess, trying to figure out Egyptian chronology. And finally he said, fiddlesticks, throw the book away. Literally. He says it's not correct. So there have been a lot of speculations as to when creation actually occurred. Even Frank Nelty says, well, we're already past 6,000 years, so that doesn't count anymore. I'm not too sure I believe that. God is precise. And if he equates the week to 7,000 years, I think he's going to make it come out right. Now, how do you figure out when creation was? If you do understand the seven-day week and the 7,000-year plan, if you can figure from 27 A.D., two years... 2,000 day, uh, 2,000 years, two days and a thousand year cycle. That's exact. A full two days, 2,000 years. Well, subtract 6,000 from that. If God is precise and it really is a 6,000 year plan, just and you've got the end date, subtract 6 and you've got the start date. Seems pretty simple to me and saves an awful lot of study and wrong answers. You'd come up with, uh, what did I figure, 50, no, 3973 B.C. And I didn't try to figure out plus or minus a year when you go from A.D. to B.C. So within a year, uh, that I think is the day of creation. 3973 B.C., maybe 74, 75, 
depending on that year that you use to transition. But isn't that important? I'm far more concerned about the end date than I am the begin date, if you know what I mean. I want to know when the wedding is, not when Adam and Eve first started. That's not near as important to me. But if you want to figure that out, it's, it's easy to do. Now, Christ announced that on 27 A.D., and you count forward 2,000 years to 2027 A.D., you have the numbers correct. If you look at what's happening in the world, you begin to realize that the fall of America and its economic collapse and military takeover is not very far away. The leaves are on the trees. It isn't far away. They are saying that the stock market may go ahead and collapse even before this year is over. Quite a few pundits are saying that, so I don't know. But throw in also uh, what we looked at before of the uh, Roanoke Village being established in 1585, and then 430 years later we come to 2015. So did God give us 430 years here to prove ourselves one way or another, and then our destruction comes? Don't know, just a thought. But let's look at another number here. If 2027 were a jubilee year, and Radio Church or Worldwide Church of God's ministry began being trained in 27-28 and beginning to have truth through that man. Remember I said when I went through the thing about him being Sardis and Thyatira being First Church of God's Seventh Day with the Seventh Day Adventist break-off, and I said that Gilbert Cranmer began Thyatira in 1858. That's 50 years, 1857-58 is 50 years before 27-28. Now, if you start it, if you start the year, the tithe year, the jubilee year on atonement, then it's from the year that you establish plus on the Gregorian calendar the next year as well to next atonement. So, so from 27 to 28. And he began, and he thinks in 27 and 28, and Gilbert Cranmer was in the process of founding in 1857 and states 1858 as the date of actual uh, organization of what we call today Thyatira or the Church of God Seventh Day. So it was within that same year. I find that very, very interesting. That one of the eras of God's church in Revelation 2 and 3 began on a jubilee year. Fifty years later, another begins on a jubilee year. And then if you add a hundred years to that, on a jubilee year, you have the return of Christ and the honeymoon and the seven last plagues, the vengeance of the Lord. Now, should the millennium begin in the jubilee year, you might ask? No. Christ returning and then having his honeymoon with his bride is the jubilee. 
The millennium must start a brand new cycle for a thousand years. So the first year of the millennium would be year one of the Jubilee cycles starting after Christ returns and his honeymoon begins. And then you would have a thousand years or 20 Jubilee cycles until the millennium were to end. Everything fits together very nicely here. We got 1858 to 1927-28 to the year 2027-28, all fitting together so very, very nicely here in the end time. I think what Christ was saying there in Luke 4 is quite significant when you consider how these other dates come together. Now let's do a little more thinking here. Uh, let's say Christ does return in 27:28. He does say he may cut time short, or he will cut time short, lest there be no flesh saved alive. Now does that mean by days, weeks, months, years? It doesn't really say. It just he'll set it cut short, lest no one be saved alive. Now, I don't think he's going to cut the tribulation short. He says it'll be 1260 days, three and a half years, and 42 months. Satan and his communist, not communist, but uh, Gentile hordes are going to be given 42 months. And God's not going to cheat him. God's fair. Now, it's going to be a bad rule... But God has said, okay, I'll give you that much. Now, you're not going to lie to him, so I don't think he's going to cut that short. Now, what is being cut short, or is in possibility? <coughs> I would say the seven last plagues in the honeymoon. Because all flesh is not going to die during the Great Tribulation. It is after the tribulation of those days that the day of the Lord begins. Matthew 24 says that very clearly. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the day of the Lord occurs. It's a year. A day is as a year. And during those seven last plagues is when mankind is subject to being completely erased from the face of the earth. So I would say that that would be what he would cut short, lest no flesh be saved alive. And he might cut his honeymoon short by a little bit as well to come back and finish putting down the rebellion and save a hundred million to be judged at the beginning of the millennium as Daniel seems to indicate. So let's assume then that the honeymoon itself... 2028 be cut short. Since that year began atonement 27, then it goes around to the next atonement in 28, so it might be cut short of a full year. But it would still be the same Jubilee cycle, just not quite finished out to the end of the year. All right, if the honeymoon... And the seven last plagues begin in 27 at trumpets, or I mean at atonement. If you count back three and a half years from there, 
Now, I'm, I'm just saying three and a half years. I'm not changing this from 365 and a quarter to 360. I think it will have been changed by then, so we're not going to get into specific days. But we're talking years here for your and my purposes of where we are. I want to know how close I'm getting to the wedding. I want to know what we go through between now and then. The preparations. The bride making herself ready. So just prior to those seven last plagues, we have three and a half years of tribulation. Now if you start counting from atonement of 27 and go back three and a half years, you come to the spring of 2024. Now we know that the abomination of desolation is set up there in Daniel 9, and that is the beginning of the tribulation. It's the day the two witnesses begin to preach for 1260 days or three and a half years. So that is the same time, of course, uh, that Christ died. It's the same time that it appears the church would go to a place of safety, would be in the springtime. I won't go into all the ramifications of that here for sake of time. What time am I getting to be? Uh, so, spring of 24 then, probably around Passover time. That's when they came out of Egypt. Uh, you would assume that that might be the same time that we again are brought out of uh, or delivered from the tribulation which will begin the day the abomination of desolation is set up in the temple in the true Jerusalem. Now, you have the 70 weeks prophecy then to put in there in Daniel 9, where it says that there will be 70 weeks to do certain things. And from the announcement to rebuild Jerusalem, to build Jerusalem, the walls in the city, would be 70 weeks until the abomination of desolation. So here we've come from Atonement 27, three and a half years back to spring of 24, the beginning of the tribu tribulation, and that day is the day that the 70 weeks end, okay? Because the abomination is set up, tribulation begins. So let's count back 70 weeks from, let's say, April of 24. And you will come to about December, around the 1st of December of 2022. Now we're getting back to the point where you might think you might live that long. December of 2022. Now, I may have some more to say about December here. I, that is not an exact day by any means. It talks about the midst of the week. Probably will happen on Wednesday uh, when that abomination is set up. So, uh, around the 1st of December. I have a, an inkling it could be the 7th of December without doing any math for another reason, and we won't get to that today. So anyway, we're back to around the first part of December 2022 when the abomination uh, or the 70 weeks starts, leading to the abomination at the end of 70 weeks. <clears throat> we are now at the end, almost, of 2015. 2016 is just around the corner, Right? Now, if the 70 weeks to begin building Jerusalem starts 
first part of December of 22. 16 and 22 is only about six years, a little over. Now, with those events in mind, we know the United States has to fall. The whore will be destroyed by the beast and the false prophet. We are the whore of Ezekiel 16 and Revelation 18. And it says that we ride the beast, and we have been up to this point, but it says they hate her and they will kill her. And Zephaniah does tell us of an economic collapse of Israel, not necessarily of the world, but it's specific to the market area of Jerusalem or the Israel of God. So we're facing that, and that same chapter, and chapter 2 of Zephaniah, talk about the Assyrian coming. So we are going to be invaded sometime between now and 19, or 2022 by, I think, the Russian, Chinese, and a great coalition of many, many nations who will come in and take over America, under the UN umbrella probably but led by Russia, who I think at this point is the Assyrian. The financial collapse is at the door. We see signs all over the world of that. We see signs in our own country that it can't be long. There's just too much debt. There's too much trouble. There's too many problems that cannot be solved and resolved. <coughs> so if that collapse and takeover comes... Soon, that means that the latter temple has also to be built, both spiritually and probably physically the temple of Ezekiel has to be built in order to be ready to be looked at or observed at the Jubilee of 2027. So what we're faced with here is if the fall of the United States is still two or three years off, then the building of the temple, the church and the temple at Jerusalem, needs to be completed before the order to build Jerusalem itself. So you're getting to be a pretty short time span there. I choose to believe that the fall of this nation and its economy is going to come sooner than later because we're only talking it over six years before the order to build Jerusalem comes, if 2027 is correct. And I see no reason why it wouldn't be, based on what Christ said in 27 A.D., and add 2,000 years to that. And we look at the signs of the times around us, and we know it is very near. We see earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars we see financial problems, we see moral problems, we see every kind of problem you can name increasing. We are now a homosexual nation uh, uh, legally, if you will. Illegal, but quasi-legal, may I, maybe I should say. So our fall has to come very, very soon for there to be time for the latter temple to be both spiritually and physically built by December of 2022. I think this gives us more light than we've ever had before on just about where we happen to be. 
And I think it's solid from Scripture and from everything we understand about the end time. Now there's more I don't have time to get through today, or get to, but uh, since I'm going to devote the feast to the who, what, why, where, when, and how of the most important thing that is coming up in the near future, and it's more important than the fall of the United States, if you will, uh, it's important to the plan of God. So maybe we'll get into some of this other material that I... Uh, that hit me last night. I, I was studying these numbers I just gave you, and uh, some other things began to come together in a quite amazing fashion. So maybe I can share those with you later. But suffice it for today that we're here anticipating the binding of Satan. We're anticipating the return of Christ, who has survived and was resurrected from the death of that goat in Leviticus 16, and is coming to redeem his bride and to marry us on the Day of Atonement, probably in 2027. So if you want to start counting down till your marriage, let's not set a date of day or hour, uh, but let's understand that, biblically speaking, God is very precise. And when he says 7,000 years, equated by the week, I don't think he's going to cheat on it. You know, you, you can't cheat on God's Sabbath, can you? Well, let's put it at 6 o'clock in the afternoon. It's more convenient. Let's uh, shorten it a day, an hour, or let's lengthen it an hour because it suits our schedule better. No, God's Sabbath comes the end of the sixth day at sundown, and it lasts until sundown the end of the seventh day. It is a precise, specific amount of time. And he equates the Sabbath to his 7,000-year plan, as espoused by the Apostle Paul in Hebrews 4, I think it is, and other places in the Bible. So I think he's direct. I don't think he's going to cheat the devil with the three and a half years. And I think he probably will cut the seven last plagues short. So the day or the hour we cannot know. But at the same time, we will already be in the kingdom of God when those are cut short, enjoying our honeymoon. So even that may not be cut short. So who knows what the exact day is. The Father and the Son do, and I content myself to know that probably 2027 is the correct year. Peace of Trumpets, 2027, he will probably return, and he will probably marry his bride ten days later on the Day of Atonement. So maybe that gives us a little more insight, a little more hope, a little more to anticipate when we understand how things lay out right in front of us, and also to brace ourselves and prepare ourselves knowing that if the temple is to be built, Jerusalem is to be built, the tribulation is to occur, and you back that up to 2022, there isn't much time left of this world as we today know it.